This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Williams. Maybe you've wondered how many families can be fed off of a half-acre farm. Or maybe you've heard about the concept that 80% of your profits will come from about 20% of your customers. Or maybe you are also wondering how you can actually get started farming if you have zero farmland and maybe you want to swap up careers. Well, that's what we'll be talking about today with our guest, Michael Bell, who is from Dallas Half Acre Farm. So Michael and I will talk about his process, about how he sells directly to consumers and why he avoids going to farmer's markets. His harvesting, delivery, and probably most of all, his marketing strategies. Also, his thoughts on the organic label and issues with foreign countries owning U.S. farmland, which that is a very hot-button issue right now. There's a ton of stuff going on, a ton of legislation that's going on, so really cool to get his thoughts on that. And also, we'll talk about the importance of growing in your context wherever your farm is. This was such a fun interview. Check out Michael at the links below at all things Dallas Half Acre Farms. And of course, check out our YouTube channel. We have some clips of the interview, um, which are super fun. I think you'll enjoy them. So yeah, enjoy this episode 198, getting so close to episode 200 with Michael Bell. Excited to chat with you. Now, before we talk about everything, I got to ask, how did you get the nickname Plant Daddy? Honestly, it was my own doing on accident. My wife bought me a shirt down to Silos in Waco, mm. and um, she brought it back kind of as a joke. Yeah. And I had to do a summit talk at uh, EarthX a few years ago, and I wore it, and somebody took a picture of it, and it just kind of went from there. So I just started wearing these different Plant Daddy shirts that I found here and there, and it just kind of stuck. And then a, a young lady named Autumn, um, who works for Inside Climate News, wrote an article about me, and she called me the Plant Daddy of Dallas. And then Apple News picked it up, 
And so the plant daddy of Dallas was on every iPhone in the U.S. for about four hours. <laughs> and the title was Plant Daddy of Dallas. And then it, so it's just kind of stuck and taken its taking the life of its own. I mean, that's not bad. I mean, that's a really good nickname to feel like I, I feel like you could get stuck with. So I've heard of other nicknames out there, but that's pretty good. I mean, are, are you happy with it? Yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity. So <laughs> you know, you call me whatever you want. That's true. I like that. Yeah, so you're in Dallas. Um, my wife and I, we've actually been to the silos a couple of years ago. It's super pretty. There's so much going on there. We haven't been since they since they like put the baseball field there or something. Was, was that there when you went? Uh, I don't go. My wife goes. Your wife goes. Okay, wh- why don't you go? Is it too touristy? Yeah, it's just too, yeah, I don't do that kind of shit. Like the, the whole... <laughs> What is their names, people? Yeah, the Chip and Joanna. Chip and Joanna, I can't. It drives me nuts because it's so overpriced and you're paying for a name. And if we go, me and my wife fight because I tell her we don't need that. She says we do. So everyone's just happy. I stay home and work at the farm and she goes to the silos. There you go. I mean, that's her thing. And your thing is staying home at the farm. I like it. So you're based in Dallas. How's the whole Dallas like farming scene? Because I know, obviously, you think of um, you think of Texas, you think of cowboys and ranches so how is it a little bit different in dallas you know the last five years i feel like the city of dallas has really um how do you say it taken hold of the urban ag thing uh okay. covid has really really opened the eyes to a lot of people the co- you know covid shutdowns and supply chains and then we've got some people uh i don't know if i can cuss on here or not but they're just badasses yeah like there's a guy named Brad Boa here. He runs Restorative Farms, and he he's just gonna bug people to death until Urban Ag, until the city of Dallas makes Urban Ag a huge deal. And you know, there's me. Uh, there's a guy at you know, it's Texas State Fair, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they have a uh, part of their uh, industry that has a massive greenhouse, thousands of feet greenhouse. And they do um, aquaponics. Okay. Wait, which one is without the fish? So hydroponics, hydroponics. They do hydroponics. Nice. My buddy gets mad at me because I can't remember that. <laughs> I mean, they're they very similar. Two, yeah, they, they have two 10,000-gallon water tanks um, that they built, that they put styrofoam on top of the water, and the lettuce and everything floats on top. And anyway, they just gave away their millionth meal to the food pantry this past summer. No way. That's awesome. Yeah, so, and then there's just new farms, and I'm not taking credit for any of it, but I think people seeing what I'm doing, it makes them realize it can be done. It's not something they see on YouTube. I have people come to my farm all the time, and it's it's called Half Acre Farm, mm-hmm. but it's like 0.3 acres. It's not even a real half acre. So when people see how much I produce on such a small scale, they're like, I could do this. Like I've got a friend that's got a huge backyard that he hates mowing. I'm absolutely, you know, that's the goal right there. So there's just been the right people really pushing the city of Dallas to help us out. And then the city of Dallas even hired an urban ag specialist. I don't know exactly what her title is, named Rebecca. Mm. And she's amazing. Like she is on the phone constantly trying to get us what we need, trying to set up new things, trying to, you know, really work, be the liaison between the city of Dallas and the farmers and new people. So it, it's a collective unit that's kind of all come together at the perfect time. That's perfect. So we actually had a guest on, I'm blanking on her name, but I'll have to find it and, and send it to you. But they're either around Dallas or Austin. 
and they started a UPIC operation and it was it was doing pretty well. But then after COVID, it exploded. And there have been so many people going there. Like they're even writing a book on how to do a UPIC farm. Oh, I, Meg. Meg, yes, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's yep. it's awesome that, you know, like these smaller farms are like succeeding and it's been so amazing. I guess it's one of the, the positives of COVID, you know? Absolutely. And not, it's not only COVID, it's also... Um, people are tired of the nonsense they have to buy at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And I tell everybody, I tell everyone that is thinking about doing this, you give them, you give somebody a bag of your fresh salad that you grow, you got them for the rest of your life. Like they just have to taste the difference and experience the difference in the salad like that I grow compared to the grocery store. They will never go back to the grocery store. You've got a customer for life. I guarantee it. And I, I prove it. Every single week, almost, I, I get one or two new customers, and they text me. I'm never eating grocery store salad again. So it's just if you can just get them to try it, you got them. So what? I mean, I know a lot goes into this, but what exactly would you say contributes to that difference in taste, the difference in quality? Like, obviously, you're you're shorting the food supply chain. You're probably using right. better varieties. Like, what all goes into that? The the dramatic improvement of the produce when you buy local. There's two things. One, and it's not just local, it's organic and local. Mm-hmm. And when I say organic, I mean actually organic, mm-hmm. not the BS label that it is now. Because let's say you buy romaine lettuce from California. That's probably got fertilizers that is NPK. Like basically that's all it is, not your testing phosphorus thrown into the soil and that's what grows your, your lettuce. My lettuce, because I'm organic, I'm also no-till, like I feel like I'm a soil farmer. Mm-hmm. And then the lettuce is the byproduct. So I do everything I can to make my soil as good as it can and it can, as, a good, as good as it can be. And then I get the production of the lettuce, which makes the lettuce that much better. I tell everyone tells me your lettuce has taste to it. It has a flavor to it as opposed to stuff about the grocery store. You know, iceberg water is just, just iceberg lettuce is just water. Mm-hmm. Whereas mine has a flavor. And the other, the, the number two thing is how, how fresh it is. I harvest my, I harvest every single day and then I deliver to those customers that afternoon. So it, it's the freshest as possible. Whereas if you buy that crap from the grocery store, like here in Dallas, most of ours come from California, like everybody in the U.S. It goes, it, it has to be harvested on day one, packaged and sets in a warehouse for three days, sets on an 18 wheeler another three days to get here. Sets in the back of the store at least one day and then on the shelf another day before you buy it. So you're looking at nine days, probably mm-hmm. eight to nine days. That's why it's always slimy in the bottom of your package. After two more days, I just bought this two days ago. Yeah, but it's 11 days old. Yeah. Whereas mine is 12 hours old. So those are the two things that I think makes my like organic local farms just that much better in produce than, than the grocery store stuff. So I've heard some quotes and they're like, um, the typical lettuce takes like a thousand miles to go from the farm to your salad or to your, to your dinner plate. And I mean, that's crazy. Let's say you're living in New York and you're getting your salad from California. Like you said, that's a really big distance to travel. That's a lot of time where it's harvested to the time it's on your plate. And I mean, it's probably going to last like maybe two or three days once it's in your fridge. Like how long would something as fresh as yours, how long would that last in the fridge? At at least two weeks. Two weeks. Okay. I've had people call me or text me or I drop it off or whatever. And they're like, 
my husband put a watermelon in front of the bag of lettuce. And I thought it was all gone. <laughs> and we pulled, and we pulled the, the watermelon out to eat it. And I found it three weeks later. Like, and it was still fresh. It's crispy. It's crunch. You know, it's, it, it just tastes better even up to three weeks. But most people, you know, eat it quick just because it's good. Yeah. That's awesome. Two weeks up to, up, I mean, staying fresh. That's a lot better than, you know, because t- we buy stuff from the grocery store all the time and it's lettuce and it lasts like maybe five, maybe six days, maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not even counting like opening it. Then it lasts not nearly as long. Um, so I like that quote that you said that you are really a soil farmer and the lettuce is a byproduct. And so you mentioned earlier also that you do organic. So what all do you do to manage the soil? Um like whether it's fertilizer or compost or whatever, like what all are you doing to improve that soil quality? It, it, it's funny. It's what I'm not doing that actually, that actually makes the soil better. I don't till, okay. which that's the biggest thing. Because when you till, you disturb all the, you know, soil is a living thing. Mm-hmm. So when you till, you destroy that soil and then it just dies. So that's the biggest thing. Two, I... Always, not always, I try to always have a living root in the ground. Okay. Because the, the living root is what feeds your soil. You know, you don't feed your soil with fertilizer. You feed it with a living root so photosynthesis can happen, and then it exudes all these stuff through the roots so the soils can eat, so, so those things in the soil can eat. Um, third thing is, excuse me, I had worm castings. There's a guy down in north of Houston called the Magic Worm Ranch. And he has the highest uh, worm castings in the, in the country, if not the world, by testing. They're the highest in every single category, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, calcium, all of those. His is the highest because he's figured out what to feed the worms. And he, you know, he needs to make a shirt that says what goes in the front comes out the back. <laughs> I like that. Okay. There's a lot, of worm, a lot of people that do like worm castings, they fit on newspaper or cardboard mm-hmm. or wood chips. Whereas... This guy feeds them uh, some blend concoction that he's come up with of tea bags and soured milk and this perfect thing concoction. So you get the highest nutrients. And I've been with him. I've been buying about a thousand pounds every spring and a thousand pounds every fall. Okay. And that's my only fertilization that I use. Uh, I might put a little bit of soybean meal because that's a high nitrogen, high nitrogen. It's organic, of course. In, in a in a new lettuce bed that doesn't have that biology yet, mm-hmm. if I make a new bed, but that that's really about it. So, you know, there's other things that you can do, but those are the three main things that I do. So, what about on the pesticide side of things? Like, I, I know you've got like a lot of high tunnels and stuff. So, what do you do on that side of it? Um, so, there's a couple of things. First thing is always having a living root in the ground mm-hmm. i always have different things that attract insects and i don't know if you know who gabe brown is yeah uh-huh. he's a regenerative uh soil expert and he always says there's 1700 good pests to one bad pest okay and insecticides kills all those pests so what i try to do is bring in all the good pests to eat the bad pests it works to an extent, you know, the biggest problem that I have are, they're called, I call them caterpillar worms, mm-hmm. uh, cabbage worms, maybe they get down in my lettuce and they eat the lettuce. And the only thing that, that really works is just to cut them off and start over. 
Really? Okay. Um, yeah, and, and it's 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 not that big a deal because it only happens for a couple weeks in the spring and a couple weeks in the fall, if you get them. And once you get them, just cut your losses, replant, you know, and, and get started again. And by then, here in Texas, it's too hot. Really? Or we get a cold spell in the fall because we always get a real early cold snap, and uh, it'll kill them. You know, they're they're kind of sensitive to the to the heat. Okay. And so picking them up, that's an example of mechanical control, right? Like if you see it starting there, you just pick up the plant, plant a new one there. Yeah. Also before I, let me clarify. So when I, I always cut it off, I don't pull, I don't pull a plant. I, I never pull a plant out of the ground. Okay. I cut it off, leave that root system so that it can, because after you cut a plant off, those roots will still not live, but they'll still do its job for another couple of three, four weeks. And then it decays and gives your, soil organic matter so that's one thing but um so i'll cut it off and then i'll remove my drip tape and i'll flame weed it with a blowtorch have you seen a flame weeder before yeah i have seen those those are pretty sweet i love like the ones for like a tractor where they have like 20 nozzles on the back and it's it's so cool i love it it's very medieval yeah yeah especially (laughs) if you've seen the videos of them at night no those are so cool because all you see is this flame and you're like, what the hell is that? <laughs> and then you, they kind of zoom in and you see it's on a tractor. But I just have a handheld $30 one from Lowe's that I've had for God, six years. So I'll go in there and I'll flame weed it. Mm-hmm. Kill anything that's on the top of the soil in case some of the worms fall off and fall in the soil. They don't get on the new lettuce plant. That's not bad. And then you'll will you leave that weed there like after it's been burnt to decompose and go into the soil? Yeah. Nice. Okay. And does that have any impact on, I mean, I imagine once it's burnt, it's not going to regrow again. I mean, are there some weeds that might regrow after you burn them? Yeah. But, but then the key to key to weeds is when you see the very first thing, just pull it. Really? Okay. I'll get it tomorrow because between today, you're going to forget tomorrow. And then the next day you won't see it. And four days later, it's the size of an oak tree. (laughs) And then you got a big problem. So every day I'll take a quick walk down the paths and just pull out what I see. Gotcha. And I can imagine that, you know, some people might say, well, oh, you're a smaller farm. It's probably easy for you to, to control weeds, but I'm sure it's not. Like like you said, that's probably a daily thing. You, you've got to make sure that, you know, you don't have a weed outbreak because you've only got like a certain percentage of, of farmland. No, that's, that's exactly right. And I will say one other thing about the no-till. Mm-hmm. No-till helps with that too, because if you till, you take any weed seed that is on top of the ground and you mm. put it into the ground. Whereas if the seed sits on top of the ground, more than likely it's going to dry out or get burned up by the, by the sun, just being too damn hot here or whatever. And if it does root, literally there's two roots set on top of the ground that suck in nutrients. So it's the easiest thing to pull. Whereas if you till, you put the seed a foot in the ground, now you've got this root that you've got to pull that's long. Yeah. So no, no-till helps with weed prevention tremendously also. That's interesting. I didn't think about no-till helping with weed prevention, but I mean, again, you, you're preparing the soil. It, it seems like when you do something like that, you're preparing the soil to be very nutrient dense, but also like very defensive against like pests and against weeds that are coming in because they've established their root systems. And I don't know, it kind of makes like a shield, I guess, where roots can't yeah. penetrate deeper. Yeah, and on top of that, um, I don't do it for my lettuce because I, I turn my lettuce beds over too fast. Mm-hmm. But like tomatoes, zucchini, stuff like that that lasts a long time, I put a good two or three inch um, wood chip mulch on it every spring. So I actually spend more time mulching my, my plant, my, my long-term plants, 
than I do actually plant. But okay. I don't have weeds. That's not bad. I, I, I mean, it seems like you just have to be very, very intentional about what you're doing. I mean, like the wood chips, making sure it's deep enough for them. Because, I mean, I'm doing that. I mean, I know it's not the equivalent, but I'm doing that like my flower beds. And the deeper it is, I have less weeds around the flower beds, which is amazing. Yep. The only thing that, that wood chips doesn't help with is nut grass. Really? Okay. And I don't know. I don't know where you are if you have nut grass, but that's the bane of my existence and Johnson grass. Yeah, I'm I'm in North Florida, so we have a little bit of nut grasses. We have a lot of weeds. We had a hurricane a couple of years ago. And I mean, obviously every year, but we had a really bad one a couple of years ago. And ever since then, we have seen like a dramatic increase of weeds. Like it's weird. I don't know if it just blew in weeds from wherever, but yeah, weeds are horrible. They are the bane of my ex- existence as well, just in terms of like the grass. So I can't imagine like having a farm. The, the best thing if anyone wants to start a new area, like a new garden or even a farm, the best thing you can do is come May. And it may not work with your timing, but if you have to burn one year, it's worth it for the next 20. Take your black tarp. Build, I, I use billboard signs. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So billboard signs, they are um, leased out for a year. And then when they're done, the company has to take them down. Well, then they sell them. And I mean, you can get a massive one for like an interstate highway for 20 bucks. Oh, that's not bad. I mean, they're massive. Mine are, I've got a few that are 15 by 40. Okay. So anyway, I just, uh, I scout my soil with the mower and then I flip it over and put the black side up and then the sun cooks it. Nice. The sun just cooks that, that top layer, the, the weed seed, the grass dies. And you can go, if you'll do June and July, maybe August, if it's real bad grass. Mm-hmm. From September, you pull it off. There's literally nothing there. Nothing. This is bare soil because everything's decayed. It's dead. You might give it a little water in case there's any seed that did leave. Those will come up. Mm-hmm. Cover it up another two weeks, and then you're good to go. So what about that versus, because I had a neighbor do this a couple of years ago. He burnt like part of his yard. Um, I don't know if he was doing it to, I don't know. I don't know what his grass type was, but I mean, is that a good option dude, too, to just burn everything and then start again? I would burn it and then I would also solarize it with the, I would water it just in case there's any seed that didn't get burned. Mm-hmm. And then that way they sprout and then put a tarp over it. Interesting. Okay. That's really good advice. I'm going to remember that. I mean, this is like, you know, farming advice and lawn advice. That's not bad. Um, so, all right. How exactly, tell us the whole inception of why you started this half acre farm. What was the inception? What was your inspiration behind it? So I've had a garden since I was five. Like that's the earliest memory of my life. Nice. Like okay. It's literally my grandma who I say raised me, even though I lived with my parents and you know, it was a completely normal childhood. Mm-hmm. I just love staying with my grandma. So I'd go over to her house and um, the earliest memory I have is in her garden, putting milk cartons over the tomato plants because the wind was supposed to blow real hard the first week that we planted. Mm. And it's just, it's just stuck with me. So, and then through college, I was the only guy that, that freaking water tomato plants with a massive hanging. <laughs> like it's just something I enjoyed. I loved it. I always loved it. And then uh, about seven, eight years now ago, I found a guy named Curtis Stone on YouTube. He's the urban farmer out of Canada. Okay. And he vlogged every day, five days a week for a full year. And in his vlogs, it was, I'm doing this. This is what I'm growing. Like it was a how-to, but it was 20 minutes, quick, easy, to the point. He was a very good teacher. And he made $150,000 on less than a half acre farming people's backyards. Shoot. 
and um, he, he's he's world renowned now. Now he goes all over the world doing seminars and conferences and stuff. So anyway, I watched all of his videos for probably like two weeks straight. I mean, he had probably a thousand videos. Mm-hmm. So I watched all of him and I said, I can do this. I'm I'm gonna I'm really gonna get serious about this. So I remembered my grandma had left me seventy five hundred bucks when she died. I was her favorite grandkid. There you go. Like, you always have that one. Oh yeah. And so she left it to me. I hadn't touched it in 16 years since she died. It just sat in the account. And uh, I called a real estate agent that I knew. I was like, hey, if you find a small, small piece of land, 7,500 bucks, let me know. She said, Mike, that's going to be hard to find. It's in <laughs> Dallas. You know, we don't find that. I was like, okay, well, just keep your eyes on Two weeks later, she called me. You're not going to believe this. I have this land. Go look at it. We looked at it. Everybody else thinks it's a piece of trash, but I knew what I could turn it into. Called her back. I said, how much is it? She said, $7,500. There you go. <laughs> and I, I laughed. I said, this is fake. Give it to them. I'm not even going to like bid. Like, offer them 7000 Just give them the $7,500 and I'm happy. So did it. Um, followed Curtis's game plan, kind of what he suggested to do and how he does things to a T. And off and running, I went. That's awesome. Um, were you... Like, how are you taking what he was sharing and adapt it to the Dallas environment? Because I'm sure like, not everything worked 100%. Like, how, how did you adapt all that to your situation? So what's, what I got lucky with is he's in Canada, but he's right above Idaho, okay. which is that dry desert. Mm-hmm. So he has 100-degree temps just like I do. Nice. He has a lot colder winter, winters than I do, but that's easy for me. I, don't, I mean, I, we had one real cold a few years ago where everything froze up people died and stuff because it was so cold oh yeah but for the most part you know 25 is about as low as it gets i have my tunnels so it's not a big deal um really i just figured out what made me the more most money what i enjoyed to sell what i enjoyed growing and that wasn't time consuming because that's my biggest thing i'm also an lhupe teacher Mm, okay so so i've got like six years left till i can retire so i'd be stupid to piss away my retirement for you know, six years. And then I farm in the mornings and after school. So I had to make sure I, I could do things quickly. What I was doing was quick. Like salad mix is easy. It's easy to sell. I don't do farmer's markets because I don't have time. Okay. Everything I sell is straight to people like teachers at my school. I live in a 600 home neighborhood, a subdivision. So I sell to about 50 people here in my own neighborhood. You know, my daughter goes and delivers on the doorsteps with their bike. Oh, I bet that's fun. Yeah, and I pay her. And I mean, it's, you know, everything that I do revolves around what is easiest and works best in my context. Mm-hmm. That's clever, adapting it to your environment. Because I mean, I know so many people that, you know, they do farmer's markets on the weekend, but they are just dead tired because I mean, they're working Monday to Friday and then they've got to do a farmer's market early. And it's just, you know, like like it's drawing them so thin, they don't know what to do. And so it's good that you're figuring out, you know, I'm not going to do that because I have more systems that work for me. Yeah, the subdivision thing, even if I lived 10 miles away from where I do now, I would target market my neighborhood that I'm in now. I'd run Instagram ads. I would find somebody in this neighborhood that I could give it to for free for them to post on the neighborhood Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Like there's a way you can get into people's Make a delivery system worthwhile. That, that's a good way to put it. Nobody, everybody thinks, God, you deliver. How much time and money do you spend <laughs> on that? Hardly any. I can deliver to 50 people in probably an hour 
on a bike if I wanted to once I got to my once I got to the neighborhood. So people think delivery and they think of Amazon where you go all over an entire town. Yeah. Literally, I could sell if I could keep expanding in produce. I could just sell to my neighborhood and make a hundred thousand dollars a year, just to my neighborhood, and be perfectly fine. That's not counting the two thousand house neighborhood that's a mile and a half down the road from me. That's awesome. I love the way that that kind of I don't know creates a perfect market. Like you are, like those neighbors all know a farmer that is delivering them food that's grown mm-hmm. locally. I think that's awesome, and I think we need you know a more. A, a food system that relates that and that's, you know, much more common. I think that's really cool that you found your, your audience, your customers, and you know, they're all within, you know, like half a mile of you. That's awesome. Yeah. It's worked out great. Um, it, it's a quick little funny story to kind of tell you what those people feel like. Mm-hmm. I had one message me that I've sold to for about a year now. And she was, Hey Mike, just want to let you know, we're moving up North to the North side of Dallas. So uh, July 15th will be your be my last delivery. I need to cancel it. I said, okay, great. I appreciate it. Um, you know, blah, blah. And then she messaged me back. But I'm going to leave your name and number and explanation of what you do on the on the counter for whoever buys our house so they can call you. That's so cool. And I thought, that's that's pretty cool. You know, I got, I'm going to probably get a free customer. I mean, get a customer for doing nothing. People just recommending me that they don't even know. Just going to leave a note. Hey, if you want fresh produce, call this guy. He has a farm. He delivered to my, my house for you know, a year and a half. Blah, blah, blah. That's like a, that's an awesome referral. I mean, you lose a customer because they're moving, but then they're like, "Hey, I'm going to tell the person that buys his house." Like, that's really cool. That's awesome. Yeah, and, and the other great things is, so like I said, I delivered to about fifty people probably in my neighborhood, and um, all I got to do is send out a, a text to all fifty of them, and I guarantee you, I could have twenty five new customers tomorrow. Really? Like, I just said, "Hey, could you go? If you see your next door neighbor in the next week, could you just mention to him what I do?" And, you know, if they're interested, give them my number. And I guarantee you 20 to 20, I would get 20 to 25 new customers. That's a good, like, that's a good system to have in place. But yeah. And I don't go anywhere. Like, I don't have to go anywhere. It's just one more stop next door. So how exactly does it work? I mean, for you guys and your customers, like, um, them picking your produce, maybe they're going to be gone a week. How do they contact you? Like, how do you manage all that delivery and, um, like, giving them exactly what they want for that week or whenever? So this is the one part that I get a lot of pushback on from people when I teach, when I do seminars and stuff. I'm very one-on-one with my customers. I know their birthdays. I know their wedding anniversaries. They know me. They know my family. So I usually end up texting everybody one by one. Okay. Or if if they're not on a schedule. Like most of them are on a schedule. Like these four people on this street, they get their stuff on Monday. These four people get it on Tuesday. That way I deliver one street, done, quick. And it also cuts down on my overhead. I don't have to have a storage unit. Mm-hmm. I don't have to have a cold storage because I'm only delivering, you know, picking and harvesting and storing for a few hours for five people. So I have a big fridge out in my garage, just a normal fridge, took all the shelves out and I just shove what they're getting in after I package it into the fridge. So it works out perfect. And then if they, if they go out of town, they just message me, hey, Mike, we'll be gone for two weeks. Don't need anything. Appreciate it. Okay, no problem. And then I might, I have a, a waiting list of about 60 people that I could text and say, hey, I've got this. Do you want it? Mm. And most of them are like, yes, please. But they know that they're on the waiting list. So they don't bug me about getting stuff every week. Gotcha. Okay. I did have one lady that gave me a soft story that I put on, on the weekly rotation just because kids was 
you know, needed it and all this stuff. So, you know, but most part, they're on the waiting list. They know it. And I try to keep them happy. Maybe once a month, I can get them some stuff when I have extra. Mm-hmm. But I keep my core 50 people satisfied. And usually they're every other week. That's one thing I do want to explain. Okay. I don't sell 50 people a week. I sell 50 people total. Um, most of them are every other week. I've got a few vegetarians that eat a lot. So you know, they go through the stuff. But most of it's every other week. Okay. And then how do they pick what they're getting delivered? I mean, is there like a bunch of options or what? Like, do you have some pricing plans or just whatever? No options. They, you know, if they've been with me for a long time, obviously, if I know John doesn't like beets, I'm not going to make him take beets. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, somebody new, the worst thing I can do is say, what do you want? Because then they're going to want salad and tomatoes. Like, And, and I'm going to, it's not good for me to do as a business side. So I tell them. You're going to get salad, you know, tomatoes, zucchini, cucumber. And it's nothing crazy. Like, I don't make them take eggplant and turmeric and all this other stuff that they don't know what to do with. I'm very plain Jane. They're just getting good, high-quality vegetables. So, you know, like I said, if I know somebody and they've been with me a while, I won't give them the beets or whatever. But for the most part, they get what I give them. And I usually don't have – they usually give it to somebody that they do that does like it in their family. Like – if John doesn't like beets, and I give him beets, I'll probably give it to his mom or his, you know, his, the next door neighbor or something like that. Do you feel like that's a really handy marketing strategy, um, telling them instead of giving them like an unlimited like um, options to buy from? Like, Because maybe that might stress them out like, oh, well, I can get tomatoes and salad, but you know, maybe you're introducing them to other stuff that they might not try like beets. So is that part of the strategy there? Yeah, and what, what else I did was, and I'm not a chef, I'm not even a very good cook, but I did learn how to cook zucchini two or three ways. I've got two or three recipes for beets. I've got a recipe for radish. So I'm like, hey, here's zucchini. I know you you said you don't eat it. Try it like this. And it's very simple. It's like cut it up, put some garlic, salt, Parmesan cheese, and throw it in the oven for five minutes. Mm -hmm. And it tastes good. So exactly what you just said. I try to give them recipes or something that might help them so that they do enjoy it. And nine times out of ten, they're like, it was really good. Nice. My husband really liked it. I didn't care for it, but my husband loved it. So then they're excited to get it every other week. That's super cool. I mean, honestly, I've never really tried anything with beets on it. But if I was getting some sort of food subscription like like what you're offering and I had beets, I'm like, well, you know what? I'm paying for this. I want to try beets. Like I want to try a good recipe for it instead of just like, you know, getting lettuce and tomatoes over and over and over again. I feel like a lot of people, like including myself, have gotten to plain Jane in the kitchen and we don't venture out as much to try new healthy recipes and new products. So that's cool. I, I really like that marketing strategy. And I mean, is that something you, you try to tell people whenever you do these seminars? Yeah. Yep. I, I tell, I, I talk to the people that I do seminars and classes with just like this. And that, that's exactly what I tell them. Um, the thing about the, like the beets is if you roast them, mm-hmm. they're really good. Like there's certain things you can do with beets that are really good. Certain things you can do with radishes that are really good. And I usually tell them, you know, if they're kind of being a little pushback on what I tell them, to get on Pinterest. There you go. Go to YouTube. Like, you can find, I guarantee you, you can find a way to eat beets on Pinterest or YouTube or, you know, somewhere. You can find a recipe in 2023 <laughs> online somewhere to where you'll like what I give you. That's accurate. And how many, um, you know, Dwight Schrute, the office jokes do you get whenever you're delivering beets? I never watched The Office. What? <laughs> yeah. 
I don't. I'm not, I'm not a huge TV watcher. Okay, okay. I'm a big Office fan, and so I mean, it, I have Beats and Dwight Schrute like ingrained in my mind. <laughs> so I figured you might get that a little bit, but that's pretty funny. Um, okay, so I got to ask, like, you are an organic farmer, and it looks like you're in really good shape. And you said you're a PE teacher, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, what's all, I mean, was there something that kind of made you, like, you know, like, fitness, healthy living, like, you know, organic produce? Like, is there something that kind of encompasses that all for you? Nope. Really? Okay. So, so <laughs> to, give, to give you an example, like, first of all, I'm not healthy. Like, I'm not that healthy. Like, I'm not, I, people think I'm healthy, but I eat chicken and rice seven times a day. Okay. Like, I, I played basketball in college. My fifth year, I couldn't play anymore because you can only play four years. Hmm. So my roommate was a football player in the same position I was, and he started going to the gym. So I went to the gym with him, started working out for the really first time in my life, lifting weights, and fell in love with it. Four years later, I started bodybuilding. So we've done seven bodybuilding shows, and it's just in, 20 years later, it's ingrained to eat this way. You know, I eat vegetables and stuff, but I, I'm not worried about, like, I don't worry about trying to eat healthy. I eat the way I eat, you know. And then organic vegetables is just, I just hate the conventional farming style. Really? There's so okay. many things wrong with it. I, I don't care what anybody says. The pesticides and the fertilization and all of that is giving people cancer. Like there's no doubt in my mind um, th- that how harmful some of the stuff that we're feeding to our kids and to our families is really doing damage to our bodies. And then on top of that, I got into the whole no-till because that's what's good for the soil. You know, that that's... I learned that's where good produce comes from. You know, I heard people talking and Curtis talk, and then I went down that rabbit hole, and everybody said, this tastes so much better than this, even though it looked exactly the same. And This was from the grocery store, and this was in our backyard. You know, So I know there's a difference. And now that I'm doing it, I can taste the difference. And I'm not even a huge vegetable lover, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. But I can taste one of my carrots that had – that's been in the ground over the winter and it's literally like eating candy or one of my tomatoes. My kids eat sun gold tomatoes for dessert. What? They, they ask me, daddy, can we have dessert? Yeah, sure. And they go get a handful of sun gold tomatoes. Willingly. They do that willingly. Okay. That's you know, awesome. Like, you know what sun golds are? Yeah. Yeah. The little orange ones. Mm-hmm. And they're actually the highest tomato in the world. Sure. Content wise. Really? Okay. Yeah. And they eat them for, so, so I know what I'm doing tastes better, it's healthier, it's better for the environment, the whole nine yards. And people that's what people want. So what do you think about this whole regenerative movement that's kind of been going on like the five, the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years? I love it. Like that, that's what Gabe Brown does. You know, he's with Joel Salatin. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, Joel's really the face of, of it because he's such a great public speaker. But the science behind it and everything, Gabe Brown is the man. Uh, Ray Archuleta, I, I listen to all those guys. You know, I go to the farm at four in the morning and I put my headphones in and I start listening to seminars and books on tapes. and Well, not book on tape, but audio. <laughs> I think I just showed my age. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, podcasts and stuff, all about regenerative farming. Like, I consider myself, even though I'm a third of an acre, I consider myself 100% regenerative farming. I even, I, I even have rabbits to put on my beds. To, they're in a cage that's 30 inches wide, that's about three foot long, that I move every day so that they can poop and pee so I can get that real-life fertilization from animals like the bison used to do over the plains 
you know, through the Midwest, why our soils are so good. It's from the animals. People don't realize that, especially the people that hate animals and say they're killing the environment. What do you think made the Midwest eight feet deep with topsoil? Mm-hmm. There was the bison moving across there one time a year, pooping and peeing thousands and thousands of tons per acre, and then they would leave for a year. And they would just grow, and then they would come back by for centuries and centuries. That's all they did. You know, so I try to recreate that with rabbits <laughs> in a little bitty pen that I move. It takes 30 seconds to move it three, you know, three feet. And I can tell, you know, what was way back there seven days ago was solid green and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then a little bit lighter, a little bit lighter, a little bit lighter, looks like crap. And then I move here tomorrow in seven days from now, this spot looks like that. You know, it's amazing what it does. So what's it like working with rabbits? I taught high school ag te- uh, high school ag classes for two years and I had rabbits and they were, they were a pain in my butt. So how is it like managing rabbits? Well, I don't manage <laughs> rabbits. I have two male rabbits that are about 13 years old. Wow. Two, okay. and, I like, and that's what I wanted. I told the lady I bought them from, I was like, do you have any rabbits that's basically worthless? Mm-hmm. She looked at me, she goes, what are you going to use them for? And I told her, and she laughed. She goes, yes. <laughs> without this one, without this one, I said, well, they fight? And she goes, no, they're too old. Put them in this little, I call it a cage, but this little pen that slides on the ground, and literally they have the best life in the world. I go in there, throw some feed, fresh water, and move them in. They get fresh you know, lettuce every day that I haven't, that I haven't cut off yet every day. So I'm not a rabbit farmer. I don't even know that much about them. This is the most hands-off type of animal farming you could possibly do. That's cool, though. I mean, but you have, you know, a natural process of getting more nutrients into the soil. Instead of, like, dumping, you know, fertilizers and whatever else into it, you have rabbits, like, literally naturally doing it. And I think it's so fun. Like, we got away from what was naturally occurring, rotational grazing with bison, with other livestock. And now we're slowly coming back to it because we're realizing, like, we don't have the topsoil. Like, I remember... There was some study done like five or 10 years ago with this farmer in, I think, England. And he did rotational grazing and he found that with rotational grazing, the soil improved so much and it also captured so much more carbon from the atmosphere. And he's like, rotational grazing is literally the answer to climate change, not getting rid of animals, not getting rid of livestock, of the livestock industry, but using them as their natural process to capture carbon. I think that's cool that we're, you know, we thought we could do better, but no, we're going back to rotational grazing. Yep. Oh, it's huge. I, I grew up in a small town just north of uh, Dallas, about an hour. And my parents owned a hundred acres and I cannot wait to get back to the, when I retire to get some cattle, do the rotational grazing, like I'm just chomping at the bit mm-hmm. to, to get back with cattle. I grew up raising Charlotte cattle with my grandpa and just love it. You know, I don't know. I may love it more than I do the vegetables, but I'm just not in a position in Dallas to be able to, to uh, do anything with cattle right now. There you go. Yeah, that, that'll be fun. I, I feel like that's, is that kind of ingrained in everybody's bones in growing up in Texas, like to work with cattle and just to long to do that? No, because my <laughs> wife was born in Texas, but she's, she was born in Dallas. Okay. You okay. Know, I, I think if you were born in the country, there's a part of you that wants that never leaves you. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. We live in, we, we live in Panama city, Florida, 
And um, I mean, it's a, it's a small town, but I mean, it's not huge by any means, but you know, it's, it's a little urban, but I want to have a farm just like, you know, one or two acres and that's it. Have like two or three cows, a couple of fainting goats, some chickens, like a little bit of a garden. And so I'm hoping maybe the next five or 10 years we can do that. I think that would be super fun because I don't know, like just, I mean, after listening to all these farmer stories for, for years and years, I'm like, man, what they're doing is awesome. And I want to eventually do that because I don't know. I feel like when we get back to basics, life is a little bit more simple. It's, it's so much less stressful when you get back to the basics. So how I think what you're doing is awesome. Clearly other people think what you're doing is awesome because of all the talks and all the seminars you're doing. How can we get more people involved in agriculture to do what you're doing where we can really shorten the food supply chain and like the end result consumers can be healthier. So what do you think we can do there? I guess as an industry to get more people involved in production agriculture. We have to tell people it's possible. Really? Most people, I have so many people that are like, God, I wish I could do this. And with and every time without thinking, I'm like, why can't you? Like literally I have a full-time job. I have three kids. I work out an hour a day and I also have a side farm. So why can't you like this piece of property cost me $25,000. You know, it was a it was a third of an acre, twenty five grand sucks, but you can find the land. I tell, and we're in Texas. Like I know it's different in Florida, but in Texas, there's so much available land, not for sale, but if you if you walked up, I always use churches. Mm-hmm. Off anyway, but every church buys three acres, thinking that they're going to be the next ten thousand church congregation. <laughs> they're going to build this massive, huge church when they have a hundred person congregation in this little bitty podunk building, and then they got two and a half acres that they do nothing with. If I had to start today, and I tell every single person I help, if I had to start today, I'd go knock on a preacher's door. So I'd go there, it's about 1230 on Sunday when everyone left, and said, hey, can I talk to you for a second? This is what I want to do. And I'd show them my phone. I'd show them my, my farm page. And be like, I want to use that spot over there. I need 50 by 100. I need 50 foot wide by 100 foot long. That's all I need. I'll give you your food pantry. Most churches have some sort of food pantry. I'll give them some food and I'll pay your water bill. All I need is that over there. I need you to say, okay, and then leave me alone. Mm-hmm. And almost every church would jump at it when they see and be like, this is Mike. He does it three miles down the road or 12 miles down the road. Call him, whatever. Because that's the reason why most people don't start. They think they got to have all this land. So we have to tell people, we have to And that's what I try to do is is get people, yeah, come to the farm. Please come, bring your friends. I'm trying to get into high schools so I can try to get some of these high school kids that are 18, 17, 18 years old. They don't want to go to college. They don't know what they want to do. You know, let me get in front of them. Let me tell them you can make $100,000 a year farming. And I call farming what I do farming. But, you know, on a very small scale, your, your startup cost can be as little as 50 bucks. You know, some seed and a, and a water, you know, you don't need a whole lot to start. Yeah. And then just reinvest that money. And in the four years you could have spent at college trying to get a degree in advertising, which you're never going to use because you're going to go into something else and $100,000 in debt. In four years, you could be making $50,000, have no debt and have a career. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what I try to tell people. And I also have people that are we going to retire. I've got a guy in Baltimore right now. And he just sold his first bed of lettuce yesterday. And he called me so excited. He's like, Mike, this shit works. <laughs> this really works. 
I sent it to my wife, sent it to school with my wife and she gave it to her friends and they all want to buy it every week. I said, I know, buddy. (laughs) I told you, I told you it would work. I'm super proud of you. That's awesome. And he's retiring from the government next year. Cool. Okay. And this is what he's going to do for the rest of his life. He's he's like, I can't do government work anymore. And that's what he's going to do. So he's like, he's probably 52, 53. Mm -hmm. And he's going to retire and he's got a full-fledged farm going and he's going to kill it the rest of his life doing something you know, he loves. That's awesome. Getting it back to basics. Um, and so the church thing reminded me of something. My ag teacher in high school had a really good idea, which I hope somebody around the country has done, but he was talking about there's so much land under power lines, like especially like the really mm-hmm. big ones, like just farm under there because, you know, like the power trucks only need like the little, they only need like a certain amount of room to drive to the power lines. And that's so much acreage that's not being utilized. And cell phone towers. And cell phone towers. Okay. You know, they're usually on an acre, they're usually on a one acre square and they just got those big, massive cables that come down, yep. anchor it in. And hell, I may do it this summer just for giggles. And I'm going to call them and be like, hey, what would you lease that to me? You know, let me send you pictures and just start the ball. I'm sure there's so much red tape yeah. for some BS reason, but there's so many places you can farm. You know, out here in Texas, we have a big community that have one acre yards. They don't do anything with it. They just didn't want a neighbor, you know, within five feet of their house. Yeah. So eventually if I have somebody that comes to me that's in my neighborhood, you know, around me somewhere and they want to farm really bad, I'm going to start knocking on doors. I'll go up to 10 houses and be like, Hey, I noticed you've got a big backyard. Can I do this on your, on your backyard? And I guarantee you there'll be some 70 year old man. Like, Oh yes, I would love for you to. I'm tired of mowing that damn thing. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to get it. I promise you. There's so much land available out there. You just have to have a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of guts to be told no 10 times. Yeah, there's a couple of groups, um, I think in Central and South Florida, where they garden in the front of people's homes, like where it's where it's like legally allowed, which is stupid that you some communities make it illegal to garden in your front yard. But yeah, they, they go around as a club and they just garden and they maintain the garden. And of course, you get like a certain percentage of the crops. But mm-hmm. that's awesome because, I mean, combined, that's probably, I don't know, hundreds of acres in that community that are being farmed. Yep. No, you're exactly. There's just, if you'll just drive down the road and just look, just look. And especially when you understand how big, like one of my tunnels, my tunnels are 14 foot wide and a hundred, hundred feet long, roughly. Mm-hmm. So 14 by a hundred can make you $20,000 a year. That's pretty good. That's not bad. Well, in an environment you can grow year round, like Dallas or Florida that you can grow year round. Mm-hmm. You can make a lot of money. Very little startup cost, you know, five grand for a tunnel and to get going. That's re- that's not a bad um, start. I mean, could you start potentially without the high tunnel and then eventually oh, get absolutely. it? Really? No, the guy in Baltimore, he's doing it without the tunnel. Okay. So what, what sort of crops, I mean, depending on the environment, but what sort of crops will be really easy to start off with and scale up? Salad. Salad? Okay. Yep. Do three varieties of a lettuce. There's three varieties that you can grow depending on where you are. But in Texas, I can only grow three. Florida's probably the same way because of the heat. Yeah. There's three that I can grow with shade cloth and a lot of water and 100 degree heat. Okay. And they'll be fine. If you want to write them down, it's Muir, M-U-I-R, Red Cherokee, and then uh, Salanova, S-A-L-A-N-O-V-A. Those are the three types that 90% of the market gardeners in the country, they grow. Okay. And it, you, you start it in a seed tray for four weeks, in a 72-count seed tray, mm-hmm. 
for four weeks and then you transplant for another four weeks and then you harvest. So if you started today, you could be making money in eight weeks. So is it a one-off harvest or can you harvest it and then let it regrow and then harvest again? You can always get two cuts out of it when they're not stressed, like in the spring and the fall. And even though, man, don't do the winter. Spring and the fall, <laughs> you, can get, you can get three cuts. You lose about 30% every time. Okay. So you got 100% your first cut. The second, second time, you're going to have 70%. And that third cut, I only use a third cut if I messed up and didn't plant enough seed that I have something to transplant. Usually, I like to do my second cutting, go home, package it, come back the next day, cut it off at the ground, and put a new one in the ground that same day. Okay. That's like the perfect scenario. But sometimes I have seeds that didn't germinate well or I forgot or whatever. So I'll just leave it in the ground and I'll get the third cutting, which you, okay. know, you don't get a whole lot, but it's better than nothing. Now, do you use that really cool contraption that's got like the drill on it that you like go over the crop and you, you collect the lettuce that way? No, those, those, um, those you can't use for the type of lettuce that I grow. Okay. That's more for like a mescaline mix. Hmm. That's all just planted really close together. I grow in heads. The, all, all three of my lettuces are, are in a head. So I just take a, you grab the whole head kind of in a, in a, like this, take a razor blade and cut it off and throw it in a bucket. And you just, just do it that way. And then the good thing about it is in about 10 to 12 days, you harvest it again. So you don't have to wait 30 days again. It comes back in 10 to 12 days and you got another harvest. Okay. That's not bad. That's really good. No, it's, it's great. And that second harvest is so clean and so easy because it grows from the middle of the plant up. So there's nothing laying on the ground. Okay. That first harvest, you lose that bottom two or three layers of lettuce and you got to fight with it and whatever. That second one, I mean, literally just grab it. I mean, you can just nonstop. It, it, it's all, I love second harvest. A lot easier to harvest that second one. Super easy because it grows up. Okay, I gotcha. Instead of falling off to the side like the first cut. Right, okay. And before I forget, I wanted to touch base on this. Like, as a smaller farm, you're delivering to a bunch of people. What sort of, like, legal or, like, government entity loopholes do you have to go through? Like, do you have to go through any sort of inspection or anything like that? How does that work out? Nope. If you're selling to people, you're good to go. Um, you can carry insurance on your crops if you want to. If you sell at a restaurant or grocery stores, that's completely different. Really? Okay. Yeah. Then you, you got to carry insurance. And the insurance isn't that much. Uh, I sold to a grocery store for about a year a while back, and it was $210 down and then $50 a month for a million-dollar policy. Really? Okay. So it's not expensive, but selling to grocery stores, you got to sell for wholesale. Then you got to pay the insurance. And then you got to pray that you don't have any mess-ups where they're giving you their refrigeration spot, which is the highest cost for them and if you miss you're costing them money there's just too much stress for me whereas if i lose a crop of lettuce i just have to send 25 text messages hey i am so sorry i'm not going to have lettuce this week blah 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 and most of the time people are like it's okay no big deal i understand you know no big deal and it's perfectly fine so uh, i have no idea how i got off on that tangent um, <laughs> no i mean that's helpful that's helpful to know though the, the legal issues yeah I don't have any. I have an LLC is the only thing that I do have. And that's just in case somebody sues me, they can't take my house. Probably a smart idea. And taxes. I tell you what, taxes are almost as good as a paycheck. Really? Okay. Yeah. Because you can, you know, small business. I don't, I don't know how familiar people are with small businesses, 
But if you have a small business, you can write your vehicle off, your mm-hmm. insurance, your gas, your cell phone, your taxes on your land. And that's just the nuts and bolts. You ain't got into the good stuff like seed costs, compost, your tunnels. On paper, I'm the dumbest, worst business person you've ever met in your life. Darius <laughs> is like, God, this guy sucks. But um, so, I mean, taxes is just a little like, bonus check every month, every year. Yeah, I'm. I have an LLC for this podcast, and I'm still trying to to figure it all out. But I mean, like we can write off my office, a bathroom, the internet, part of our phone bill. I mean, I built a new computer this year, so I could write off some of the parts for it. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, if you have an LLC, you can do a lot of really good things, which is very handy. I mean, um, and also, so you're talking about the the, the grocery stores and direct to consumers. Do you have any interest in going to restaurants, like maybe selling to local restaurants? No, again, same thing as a grocery store. You, you have to take wholesale prices. Chefs and restaurants are even bigger a-holes than grocery stores because, you know, again, if I lose a crop to, like, we had a tornado come through, you know, not, it didn't hit my farm, but it was really bad about a half a mile, and the wind messed up some of my stuff, and I didn't have crops for a couple of weeks. Mm. Those chefs, they don't care. <clears throat> they have people to feed. They Now they have to go search for product because I don't have it. And again, I'm not making as much money as I could selling to people. Now, do you feel like some people that maybe start a small scale farm like yours, they kind of spread themselves too thin by going direct to consumers, farmers, markets, restaurants, and grocery stores if they go that route? Oh, yeah. P- people go in with huge... I, hell, I did it for three years before I figured out what I was doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I focused more on the selling than the growing, and I, then I couldn't meet demand and burn bridges because I didn't have product. I tell anybody, if you're going to do this, like if you have, if you want to do this, grow salad mix the first year. That's all you do. You become the best salad mix grower you can grow, you know, that you can be. And then the next year, you add in one or two more crops. You add in carrots in the, in the winter. You add in tomatoes in the spring. Maybe some radishes and beets because they're easy. But the worst thing you can do is, is grow all these different crops and try to sell at all these different places. Literally, just start with salad mix and sell to your friends the first year. Because if you can, I always tell people, if you can sell John across the street salad mix, he's going to buy cherry tomatoes to put on it. He's going to buy onions to put on it. He's going to buy beets and radishes to cut up. I tell everybody that I, that I talk to, you know, I'm like Bubba Gump <laughs> on, on Forrest Gump. I'm like Bubba. Shrimp salad, you know, <laughs> uh, all these different types, you know, fruit salad, nut salad, you know, cucumber salad, all these different types of salads and everything's based on my salad. Yeah. You got to have the base first and that's what I want to sell you. So I always tell, tell people start with salad and then add in one or two high dollar crops. Like tomatoes are obviously the best in the summer. Everybody wants tomatoes in the summer, especially if you grow sun golds because I, I don't even grow any other types. I used to grow several different varieties. I don't even do that anymore because nobody wants them. Mm. Like can I just get the orange ones. So, hell, I planted 200 sun gold tomato plants this year. That's all I grew. Nice. And are those just annuals? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, but if you got a tunnel, I'll pu- unless we get a crazy cold snap this year, I'll sell tomatoes on Christmas that I planted in March. Really? Okay. Yeah, I planted uh, – this year I planted them the first week of March. And unless something crazy happens with cold snap, real cold, I'll be selling tomatoes Thanksgiving and Christmas. Okay. That's awesome. Um. So all you're saying reminded me of a quote that I thought really only applied to content creation, but it also really applies to your situation. The riches are in the niches. 
Like you're, you've honed in on what exactly you can grow and who exactly your customer base is. And you've honed in those two things. And now you have a really successful business. And I feel like a lot of people think that they need to reach all the customers, do all the products, but then they just spread themselves too thin. And then they, you know, aren't nearly as profitable. Yeah. Well, have you ever played this principle? Do what? Have you ever heard of Plato's principle? No, what is it? It's 80-20. 80% of your income will come from 20% of your customers. Mm, okay. It's 80-20 for everything. Um, I wish I could give you more examples, but that's the only one I can think of. You know, 80% of all the money that I make usually comes from 20, 20% of the people because I get those people that buy the salad. And then they want tomatoes and cucumbers and zucchini. They, they want all that. So all my money comes from these 20% as opposed to trying to get a hundred people to spend $5. I'm trying to get 20 people to spend $25. I don't know if that math comes out right, but you get what I'm saying. Oh yeah. I get the gist of it. Yeah. So that, that's, that kind of goes along with what you're saying too. I like that. Um, I, I've heard stuff vaguely like that, but I didn't know as a whole like flushed out principle. Um, cause yeah, I mean, even like you were saying earlier, like, I guess going back full circle, like that 20%, because one person's moving away, it's going down to like, I don't know, 19%, for example, mm -hmm. but they're referring somebody and maybe they can refer someone else. And that loyal 20% helps with the other 80% of the customer base. Yep. And it's so, and, and it's so easy. I want to talk about marketing for one second. Yeah, yeah, please. It's so easy to do, to get new customers in 2023 because you have Instagram. Yeah. And People eat, people buy with their eyes, especially the food. They, they, they eat, they, they want to buy stuff that they can relate to. So people tell me all the time, like I buy your stuff because I see your kids eat it straight off the plant. <laughs> like I'll get my kids out there and you know, while I'm trying to do something real quick, I'll, I'll shoot a video of them just because I think it's a cute video. My kids yeah. are on my farm and they're just eating tomatoes off the plant. They're not even wiping it off. And I've had several customers say, your kids eat it off the plant. They don't even clean it, they don't work it, wipe it off, nothing. So if it's good enough for your kids to eat off the plant, I'm 100% for that. And and that strictly goes to Instagram. You can market on Instagram down to the zip code. Mm -hmm. I did it last week just to see what I would get from across the street to build a 2,000 home subdivision across the street. Nice. So I entered in my zip code, and then there's a spot where it says area. You go within one mile, two mile, three mile, whatever. One mile of my house, and then people that watch Martha Stewart, that organic, like all these hashtags, you put those in and then it says, you know, I think $5 is the minimum per day. And then if you want to spend seven, then your range goes from 500 people to 800. people. If you want to spend 10, it goes from 800 people to a thousand per day. And if you want to do three days, you put three days. If you want to do seven, you do seven, you know? So it's so easy to advertise on Instagram right now. And because food, you wouldn't sell insurance on Instagram. Yeah. It's not something you want to see. But if I put a video of my farm, I have a really pretty video that turned out really well that I always use for my advertising when I feel like I want to, that I put on there and every time, 10, 15, 20 people. Oh my God, this is so pretty. How do I, you know, how do I buy? And they're in Fort Worth or something. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> buddy. I just happened to pick up because they were visiting their mom out here or something. That's perfect. And do you use any other social media um, platforms like Facebook or Twitter or anything or TikTok? Not really. I just use Instagram. It, I would use Facebook if uh, if I need if I needed 
more customers. Mm-hmm. Really advertising, I do the advertising just so I can help other people do it. Like new farmers, like my guy in Baltimore that's doing it. I want to be able to help him. So I play around with the advertising part of it just so I can be help with him. Facebook, I don't do a whole lot. Instagram is the key, I think, to farming. And, you know, I mean, you mentioned that you're, you film a lot of your kids um, out there helping out the farm. Is that super fun to have them work with you at the farm, you know, learn where their food comes from and just kind of be an active part in it? I mean, even like delivering the food. I think that's super cool. Yeah, my, my, my 11-year-old, she loves delivering. Like, like That's her favorite part. My 7-year-old, she just wants to play with animals. Oh, really? I've got, I've got chickens and quails. Does she play uh, with the rabbits too a little bit? Yeah, yeah. She, she's an animal person. I, I'm, I'm really hoping she grows up and wants to like start her own quail hatchery. So, or what, that, that's what she got for the end of the year for being good the last month of May and like getting in trouble. I bought her, I bought her quail to raise this summer. Oh, that's cool. It's funny because there's always two tracks in, in agriculture or farming. You've got the plant people and the animal people. And so you have both. That's funny. Yep. Yeah, but no, it is fun. Um, the heat gets so intense and I go to the farm so early during the summers. They don't go with me a whole lot. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to up at four in the morning like I do. Yeah, I'm sure they would and hate that. 11 o'clock, it's 95 degrees. No, so thank you. Go out. But um, yeah, it's fun. I mean, they help me. I've got tons of videos of my seven-year-old planting seeds because she's perfect. She's got little fingers. Oh, so she she plants the seeds for me and stuff. But I'm I'm hoping one of them grows up and I have somebody to eat the farm too. Yeah, that's super fun. I mean, you know, they can have their own you know impact on it. Um, now this this is something that's really cool that I would talk to you about. Um, in agriculture, I feel like people that want their kids to continue on the farm, there's two ways they can do it. You know, it's either they force the kids on the farm or they leave the door open. It's like, Hey, you can come back and farm. It's always here for you, but you can go out and also do whatever. Have you thought about that yet? Cause that's been a really interesting thing to learn about from, you know, family farming. Um, not, not from my farm. My kids aren't old enough yet. I think to really figure out if that's what something they, they want to do. Yeah. Um, I, I, I more have figured out from my mom and dad, like from being the kid instead of the parent, because my parents, like I said, they own a hundred acres mm-hmm. and it's pristine cattle land right south of the Red River. Um, and they, they live on it and everything. I always joke. And we have very morbid conversations. That's just our personality. I'm like, you, you know, when you die, I get this, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And sister's not getting this. So <laughs> I'm the favorite too, right? <laughs> yeah. Like sis, sister's going to sell this. Like she just wants the millions of dollars. No, oh, yeah. I, I want it for me. Um, so we, you know, I've learned about trust and setting things up in a trust to kind mm. of watch out the inheritance tax and, and that kind of stuff. But I think it's very important that we keep the land in our family and not sell it to Bill Gates or the Chinese or, you know, or whatever, you know, if, obviously if something happens one day and I need a lot of money, you know, I'll have to sell it. But my goal is to keep that family, keep that hundred acres in my family, build it into something great because right now my dad doesn't do anything with it he just didn't want acres hmm. he, he didn't want it. he didn't want to see anybody he wanted to be by himself so he bought it but you know one day when i take it over turn it into something great and maybe one of my kids and you know what it doesn't have to do with my kids like if i have a 18 year old that comes to my farm and works with me for 10 years on my farm and you know then i'm ready to retire as long as it's going to be used as a farm and not going to be sold to build houses on i can die happy yeah. Um, I feel like because of social media, there's so many farms that kind of go viral because they refuse to sell, 
you know, to developers. I mean, there's one farm somewhere in Europe and the, the farmer refused to sell. And it's now like right in between a bunch of apartment complexes. I've and he, he, he drives his, his combine like in between like the parking oh. spots. And it's so funny. He's like, you know what? I'm sitting on a million dollars of land, but I am not selling it because I want to farm. Well, there's a guy here in McKinney, which is a little, not a little. Dallas is just a big circle. Yeah. And the north side is where the money is. Mm-hmm. Like north side of Dallas is crazy expensive. And I don't know. It's got to be a thousand acres. If, if you ever get bored, go to Google Maps and type in McKinney, Texas. Okay. And look down and you'll see this massive wheat cornfield surrounded by nothing but track homes, subdivisions and track homes. And it's exactly the same way. Just sitting on $100 million, probably. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's ridiculous how much money that land would be worth. He won't sell. That's good. That's wild. And, I mean, speaking of selling land, like, what's your perspective on Bill Gates, all these foreign countries buying U.S. farmland? Because it's something I've been learning more and more about. I mean, there are farms here growing countless crops here in the U.S. and then shipping all of that crop to another country. But it's U.S. farmland. It's weird. Like, what are your thoughts on it? The, the scary Bill Gates doesn't worry me so much. I don't think he's going to do anything with it. Like, I think he bought it because he's a business. Like, I'm not a Bill Gates fan. So mm-hmm. he could die tomorrow and I'd probably clap. <clears throat> but as far as like, he he's going to do something with it. I think he just bought it because he's a business person and he knows farmland is going to be worth 10 times more in 10 years than it is now. What worries me and that I, that I hate is the fact that Chinese have come in and bought up so much land in Arizona and California. They're growing alfalfa hay off of it, which is massively water intensive. So they're sucking all the water out of our aquifers for alfalfa hay, which is the highest quality hay you can grow, cutting it, belling it, and sending it back to China. So they're not really sucking the, the produce off of our farmland. They're sucking the water out of our ground. That's taken thousands of years to get there, and they're sucking it out. The, the West is a desert. I know they just had massive flooding and all that, but it could not rain for another five or six years like it did previously. Um, so the water concern is more what I worry about, you know, with, with countries. You know, Saudi Arabia does the same thing. Saudi Arabia is a massive landowner, and they suck the water out, and they grow all these high-intensive, water-intensive crops. Yeah, and especially, like you said, if it's in California or these desert areas, wherever they have... Um... Um, all these droughts, they also have like wildfires everywhere. They have massive drought problems, so much water issues. So, like, I mean, clearly that's not good for that state. And I, I don't know if it's a state like maybe Georgia or if it's just, you know, here on the national level. But I think there's some center that's trying to introduce a bill that's going to ban foreign countries from owning farmland. Yeah, Texas is trying that. Really? Okay. Has, is there any update on it? That just started. Like, I think it just got, like, introduced to the House a couple of weeks ago. No, there's several states. Um, Christy Nome in South Dakota. Yeah. South Dakota. She's a real big. I'm pretty sure she's trying to pass that, too. Um, there's there several states that's trying to pass things to keep, to, you know, foreign people from buying our land. But the problem is they'll just open up some shell company in the United States. I mean, there's a way around it. They're, they're, they're pretty smart people. Yeah, that's true. It's unfortunate about all the loopholes that they could find. Um, I don't know, which maybe, I mean, from your perspective, like, do you think there could be like a decent way to do this? Like, I don't know, foreign countries owning U.S. farmland? I mean, or is there just not a decent way to do it? 
problem with them owning the farmland if they i don't even care if they own the farmland and lease the land back to americans because we just don't have the money to buy the farmland mm. just keep the produce that we grow in america mm. like and there's no reason why we should be growing alfalfa hay in arizona like that's another issue and you know joel salatin and gabe brown talk a lot about this is grow in your context like there's no reason why we should be growing what we grow in you know, I think California is one of the largest almond producers yep. in the country. Mm-hmm. And it takes one gallon of water to make one almond over the course of a tree's life. So that's stupid. Why are you going to grow a water-intensive product in California? Why can't you grow something that doesn't need a lot of water or learn how to water better? You know, this overhead, you know, the... You just look on a map and you see that big circular thing on a map with the water. Like there should be none of that in California. Yeah, the, the center pivot ones, yeah. Everything should be on drip irrigation in California and Arizona. But, and I don't understand why we're, you know, what really irks me is when I go to Whole Foods or Sprouts. And of course I go through the veggie section and I look at tags. Everything's from Mexico. Yep. Why are we buying Me- Mexico beets? When I can grow them just as good and better and more local than, than you can get them from Mexico. Like that just, and I know there's somebody out there going to be like, well, economically, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> like, I get it. I understand it's all about money. But at some point, we have to realize we got to grow stuff more local. Yeah, I've heard a lot of stuff about, you know, Mexican produce being dumped here so that they can get access to the U.S. dollar. And mm-hmm. like if it's organic or not, like their organic standards aren't going to be like our organic standards, Not even close. And, but it's still going to be sold cheaper. And the consumer is going to be like, Oh yeah, it's organic. So it's healthier. Right. Like, no, it's not like, it's just cheaper. It is not up to the same standards as American produce. It's just, they're taking advantage of the system. And I feel like the normal consumer doesn't know that because honestly, like there's so much that goes into it and we're busy fighting all of the dumping of the produce here. We don't have time to educate on all that. It's, it's a really tricky slope. It's very, and it's even more tricky now that, that the organic label doesn't mean what it used to mean. Lobbyists have, like, I'm, somebody probably correct me, but there's some organic law out there, you know, the, to go by the organic standard. You can use a certain spray if you don't spray within seven days of harvesting. Mm. And it's still classified as organic. That doesn't make any sense. That's not organic. It has, this, you know, that spray gets into like cellular levels of plants. It's there. It's not just going to, go away because it's been seven days uh, I, I i'll get on a soapbox about the organic label in a heartbeat i hate it i'll never give them people one down on my money well, why so so i'm actually i'm working on a video um that i'm gonna put on youtube eventually i've been working on it for like months and i'm still writing the script but like like what are your thoughts on it because i'd love to, to to learn like why you don't like that label and like the people behind it and you know the whole thing everything just turned into money lobbyists have paid you know, pe- people, these, like Roundup, I know people don't spray Roundup on plants, but for example, glyphosate. Yeah. These people that produce these chemicals pay these organic labels, just like what I just said. They pay them to pass this law that says, well, we have had research, and of course you can find research to back up any point you want to back up, you know, that says if you don't spray it within seven days, it's not harmful and it's actually still organic. No, it's not. You sprayed it, and if you tested it, you know, with a non-government-funded lab or a completely unbiased lab, 
the results are going to show you there's still glyphosate inside that lettuce or those strawberries. Do you know strawberries are so sprayed with chemicals that if you squeeze a strawberry, a non-organic strawberry, squeeze it, that you that that you can then use that strawberry juice for a pesticide? Really? That you can put it back on more strawberries and it'll be used as a pesticide? Hmm. Like non-organic strawberries are one of the worst things you could possibly eat because they're sprayed so much because so many insects want them and animals want to eat them because they're so sweet that they just, they, they just spray the hell out of them. Um, but that's the biggest thing is with the organic, back to your question with the organic label is it's just watered down. It doesn't mean anything, you know, to, to the people that know like me, you know, not that I'm smart. This is just what I do for a living. Like you go to the store with my wife and she's like, Oh, this is organic. This is healthy. I'm like, no, <laughs> no, I mean, it's like, well, I, I appreciate, I applaud you for trying, but no, it's not. <laughs> That's what's great about having a farm and like, well, I want a, a thousand farms like mine in the Dallas area is because you see, you can come to my farm anytime you want to. You'll never see a bottle of Roundup on my farm or a bottle, any chemical on my farm at all. If I can't spray it in my mouth, I ain't using it. Yeah, you know, your quote earlier is that you can find any, like, research to back up any sort of claim. And, I mean, like, you honestly can. I mean, I like there's a lot of people I follow on both sides where they're like, um, you know, like, pesticides are okay. And then there's also people that are like, pesticides aren't okay. And, like, I'm kind of in the middle. I'm like, you know, I understand why we use them because of the production of, you know, food on the massive scale but I'm also like, you know, there's research for it and there's research against it. I know there's this whole debate about, you know, like eating strawberries, for example, that might have pesticides on them. It's parts per billion versus parts per million and how your stomach acid gets into that and destroys parts of it. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. It's just so confusing because there's so much information out there where it's it's okay, it's not okay. And I think the thing is like, I feel like we need more study, we need more data. We need more people like you to do it your way. We need more people. I don't know. Just, I don't know. It, it's very tricky. It's very interesting. And I feel like we still have a lot to learn about all of this, about all of food production, really. Yeah. Well, th this is the one thing I'll say, not to rebuttal what you said, yeah. but to add on to what you said. Auti why has autism gone up so much in the last 50 years? Mm -hmm. Why does everybody have IBS now or other digestive issues? Like there's so many things wrong with american people with americans today and there's only one common denominator between all these people it's food mm -hmm. it's the food we eat like it doesn't matter if you're black white woman male from new york or from florida or from texas we all have the same issues and those issues are we eat the same same food mostly from california <laughs> yeah you know which is high intensely sprayed it has um very very low nutrient density. Have you have you read and learned a lot about the nutrition nutritional density? Yeah, it's gone down a lot, right? Yeah, so like you have to eat nine carrots today to get one carrot, one the same amount of nutrition from one carrot fifty years ago. Really? Okay. Same thing with like apples, like all like um, there's uh, one saying. I don't know if it was Gabe or Joel or Ray Archuleta who it was that said you used to be able to eat two meals a day because you were so full because the food was so nutritionally dense. Mm -hmm. Now we're eating three, four times a day and snacking 
because what we're putting in our body is not nutritionally dense. It's food-like substances. You know, celery is a great example, or cucumber. They said you know, 50 years ago, you could cut open a cucumber and water would go everywhere. You could snap open a celery stick and water would just ooze out of the celery stick. Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't do that. Why? Because there's not the nutrition inside those, those vegetables to hold the water. And that's what makes people, that's what used to make people full was the, the, the water content in food and the amount of nutrition in food. And it's just not there. That's why we're always hungry. Interesting. And I mean, going off of that, like, I wonder if there are any studies that kind of look into our diets and just kind of see if, you know, like all the highly processed foods that we're eating, if eating those completely counteracts the healthy food that we might be eating, you know, to where, which I'm sure it does. But I'm just wonder because there's a lot going like our food nutrition has been going down. Like, is there a happy median where we can eat a little bit of processed foods or do we just need to completely redo our diet? I don't know. Uh, I, I think there's definitely a place for processed food. Mm -hmm. um, I just wish the people that think that they're eating healthy by eating can Del Monte kale, you know, green beans out of a can would realize that's there's nothing in those green beans. Like I'm not telling you not to eat them. Just don't think because you're eating a can of Delmonte green beans that you're, oh, I got my vegetables for the day, you know, because there's nothing, there's there's no nutrition in those. Have you heard of a refractometer before? Vaguely. The refractometer is a is a device that they've come out with that you hold up to like say a tomato. Yeah. You put a tomato here and a refractometer, and that refractometer can tell you the nutrition level like from a one to ten scale for example okay it's very high there's a lot of nutrients don't ask me how it works because i'm not near smart enough to know that but it's coming out to where you can put it on a phone really okay and you can take it to the grocery store it's still a couple years away but eventually you'll be able to, you'll get this app and there'll be a refractometer and or refractometer like app mm -hmm. that you can that you can scan a food and it can tell you how nutritionally dense it is. So when they go to the wall, go to Kroger and they scan a tomato and it's a two, then they go home and scan one of my tomatoes and it's a nine, even though they look exactly the same, that's when people's eyes are going to open. That's when everyone's, or, you know, a zucchini or a cucumber or this or that. You start doing that down the list and all five of my crops that I'm, that I grow are six times higher than the crops that you can get at the, at the grocery store. Yeah. You realize, okay, now I get it. You know, most tomatoes that are grown at the grocery store are grown hydroponically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's why they're so pretty because they're grown indoors in a completely sterile situation, but they have no flavor and they have very little nutrition, you know, but I can't sell an ugly tomato, even though it tastes 10 times better you know, it's, but it's split at the top because I'm growing it in Texas, you know, so they crack and it's not as pretty. That's why I don't grow big tomatoes because I can't sell them. Yeah. So I've heard that debate a ton and I like, I've definitely experienced it. Like when we go to the grocery store, we want the perfectly round, perfectly red tomato and we get it, but it's not going to be very tasty. We get an heirloom tomato that's multicolored, just deformed and ugly. It's going to be so much tastier, but we yeah. have this idea that, you know, we just need a perfectly red tomato. And the same thing happens for, you know, carrots, squash, zucchini, cucumbers. Like we want the perfectly shaped food, but usually it's grown that way for, you know, the consumer wants it perfectly grown. So we're going to meet that expectation. But 
the ones that are deformed that look funky are going to be tastier and probably more nutritious. Oh, it's without a doubt going to be more nutrition. People always talk about can hydroponics save the world, you know, with food production. And it can grow a lot of food, but you get NPK in a hydroponic system. Mm -hmm. You don't get the boron, the calcium, the magnesium, all these little micronutrients that you get out of a good, healthy living soil that helps your body actually be healthy. Hmm. Yeah. Hydroponics is cool, but you can only do so much with it. I mean, like I know a lot like these companies are getting evaluated with billions of dollars. It's the future, but you can only grow leafy greens there. Like you can't really, or, or tomatoes, you can't grow countless other crops. Like it's, it's, I feel like it's going to help agriculture, but it's not going to be the end all be all, which is what a lot of people are thinking. Yeah. And, and how nutrition are those right back to what I just said, how nutrition, you know, are those vegetables that you're eating? Cause you're literally getting NPK. Mm-hmm. Maybe something else that you could fit into a soluble form in the water, but you're not getting all those micro- micronutrients that your body really needs. Yeah, that you're going to get naturally from the soil for farms like you that are clearly, like like you said, going full circle again, a soil farmer. And the lettuce is the, you know, just an output, which I think is a really cool perspective. Yep. That, that, that's my goal is to create the healthiest soil I can. And then whatever grows out of it, like, and it's funny I don't mean to get off another tangent, but the bed that I'm growing my tomatoes in now, I grow tomatoes in every year, which mm-hmm. apparently is a big no-no. You're supposed to rotate your beds and your crops, and but until something happens, I'm not changing it. But every single year, that bed produces bigger, better, and higher yield tomatoes than it did the year before. And that goes back to my practices of being no-till, always having a root in the ground, you know, all those things just makes that, that bed that much better. Whereas if I have a brand new bed I just made, actually I do, I just made back in the early spring, planted one lettuce crop in it, didn't do too well. And now I've got tomatoes in it and those tomatoes aren't doing anything compared to what my tomatoes are doing that mm. were in the bed that I made five years ago. Cause that's got five years of living soil biology in it where this new bed only has six months. So the longer you can keep a bed going, more nutrition it builds, the better the soil, the better the biology, the better the plants and healthier and tastier the fruit. Well, hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, clearly. That that's dude, <laughs> that just makes my life so much easier. Until something happens, I can fit 35 tomato plants in that 50-foot bed right there. That's pretty good. I like that. Like you, you, You're seeing that this is working, and so you're like, I'm not going to change this because this is clearly the tomatoes are loving this environment, so I don't need to go with conventional wisdom and rotate it because – the tomatoes are clearly adding to the soil. You're doing so much more like no-till. Um, yeah, that's awesome. I have not heard about that, but that's really cool. Well, and then after, as soon as my tomatoes are, I kill my tomatoes in the winter whenever they die out, I'll go in and I'll put a cover crop. That's another soil health principle to cover yeah. crop. Cover crop is usually just like wheat or um, you know winter wheat, rye, maybe some broccoli plants that I might get a broccoli head or two off of, but it's not as, I try to put in as many different plants as I can in that soil mm. and then I let it grow from Christmas day when I put it in till the first week of March and then I mow it or weed eat it down, cover it for a week and then you know, make sure everything's dead, no light, anything gets in there, everything dies and then I plant tomatoes in it. So it's getting other nutrients from other plants, just not year round, just in those two or three months. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Managing the soil with those cover crops, I feel like is really cool and really smart and very intentional again. Yeah. Yep. 
And, and it takes CO2 out of the air and puts it in the ground where it's supposed to be. Also true, which, I mean, every farm of every size is doing that, which a lot of people don't realize. I mean, you're still doing a really good job and keeping it all in there without the, with, with the no-till. Like, you're not disturbing the soil, CO2 leaving. And so I feel like it's also really smart. Right. That's one of the goals. One of the goals. Well, Michael, this has been fascinating. Super cool. I think what you're doing is phenomenal at Dallas Hefaker Farms. If people want to follow you, if they want to maybe go visit the farm, where all can they go to get in touch with you? Instagram is the easiest place. I answer all my DMs. It may take me a day or two to get to because they go to spam and I don't check that every day. <laughs> but uh, it's just at Dallas Hefaker Farm. Uh, just make sure you put the Dallas in there because there's a couple of half acre farms. So it's just at Dallas half acre farm. <clears throat> if you got questions, you know, shoot me a message. Uh, go through my, when I post stuff on Instagram, it's for two reasons. One, kind of an ad- advertisement to show people what I do. Yeah. And the other mainly is to teach people how I do it. Hmm. So I'll spend some time saying I do this because of this. Or remember last week on that post, three posts again ago, this is why I did it because now this is the result of that. So I try to use it as a teaching tool also. Um, so Instagram, I don't do hardly anything on Facebook. I think I have a page, but I don't ever check it. But Instagram is the best place. And uh, if you have like direct questions or you're interested in you know what, what I'm doing, uh, maybe you want to do it, you can email me at mbell971 at yahoo.com. Um, shameless plug, I do a... Uh, uh, program where I mentor people. It's a monthly fee. Uh, it's, it's very, very cheap, very reasonable. I think it does just cover my time so I can say, Hey honey, I'm making money. Yeah. yeah <laughs> there you go. It it's really cheap. And basically I'm at your beck and call, you know, by text message, you need to FaceTime me, whatever. Uh, you know, the guy in Baltimore, I have a lady in Colorado, a lady in Georgia that's using it, a little consulting business type thing. Um, and it's pay by the month. And that way, you know, after three months, if you don't think you need me anymore, good luck to you. I'm still around if you need me. If you need me for two years, I'm here for two years. It's however, you know, no contracts or anything. It's really easy to do. I just want more people to farm. I got you. Yeah. And I feel like you're doing that. I mean, you're doing a really good job spreading the message about, you know, everybody can get into farming. It doesn't have to be an impossible um, task. You don't need a ton of money. It's a lot more manageable than a lot of people think. And that's cool that you're, you know, mentoring people and also doing these seminars and sharing what you're doing on Instagram. So keep it up, man. If you have a, if you have a garden and you want to make money, reach out. Like that is, We're just going to scale up what you're doing mm-hmm. and change what you're growing just a little bit and you'll make a few hundred bucks a month at the very least. Hey, that's that, that's that's game changing for some people. Yeah, people think, you know, they love the garden and they they don't they want to make money. But again, they, they don't have a perspective of a small area and how to do it. Like I grow so much food in such a small area mm-hmm. that that it's just like I'm just dying to get people, more people to do it. Well, hey, the more the merrier, and the more people we get farming, the smaller the food supply chain gets, which I think is huge. Better for everybody, and also not to mention healthier for ever, for everybody, and also healthier for the planet. So obviously, it's a win win win. Yeah, exactly. Well, Michael, thanks so much for being on, man. We'll have to touch base with you soon. Keep up all the amazing stuff you're doing. Hey, you too, buddy. I enjoy your content. You keep up the good work, too. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this episode, and thanks again for Michael for coming on the show and telling us a thing or two about Dallas Hefager Farms. This is actually the last episode from D.C. Allie and I are moving back home. We're super excited to be back in Florida, um, and we'll have more episodes coming very, very soon. 
when episode 199 launches, we'll be back in Panama City, so you will probably hear the differences of being in the studio, aka the office, versus the apartment here in D.C., The acoustics aren't great, but they also haven't been super bad. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Oh, that's awesome. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.